All right. Let's look at Revelation 11. We're going to read a few verses, but I want to start with a quote that might inspire you. This is from Craig Keener, and he says, This is the most difficult passage to interpret in the entire book. So, Revelation is the hardest book in the Bible to make sense of. And Keener says this, and Mount says this. A lot of commentators, when they come to chapter 11, they just preface the whole thing and they say, This is tough. This is really, really tough to make sense of. There's so much imagery, and it's so hard to wade through it. I have no doubt that there will be some disagreement amongst us and what some of these things mean, and I don't pretend to have all of this figured out, uh, but we're going to give it a run. So let's read Revelation 11, 1 to 14. We'll save the last section, 1 to 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast... <laughs> that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to them. Uh, they went up in heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And again, he leaves us hanging with this third woe. He tells us that was the second woe, but the third one is still to come. So, one of the things I've resisted doing as we've studied Revelation is going down different interpretive rabbit trails because it gets so confusing. This is the most debated chapter in Revelation in terms of what's going on here. So I just want to present you with the major interpretive viewpoints and what they believe is happening here, okay? The preterist interpretation of Revelation. This is the view of Revelation that says everything in the book has been fulfilled. It's all in the past. It all came to culmination in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. 
So the preterist view says that Revelation was written before 70 AD and the events of the book were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The worshipers that we just read about at the temple are ethnic Jews worshiping in a literal temple that would soon be destroyed and the witnesses are two real people. And there's a lot of preterist views that will go back and identify these two witnesses as two historical figures who were in Jerusalem around 70 AD. It was the high priest, and it was the governor, it was this guy, it was that guy. They, they try to identify who they were. And the preterist view is saying everything that you just read, it's all in the rearview mirror. Everything has already happened, it's all occurred, it's in the past, it's done, it's all finished. Next, the dispensational view. Uh, dispensationalism. Revelation focuses on the final seven years of human history. There will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation. And the worshipers here are ethnic Jews, and the two witnesses are two real people who will fight the Antichrist. So that's a, a typical dispensational view. Now just caveat, within the preterist view, there's about ten versions of that. And within the dispensational view, there's about 50 versions of that. All these have offshoots. I'm just giving you the big parameters. Non-dispensational futurist. So the difference between this view and the dispensational view, okay? Dispensational view is going to find a rapture of the church somewhere earlier in the book. And this non-dispensational futurist view is going to say, no, we don't see that anywhere. We don't think there's going to be a rapture at church, but we still think that this is all about the future. It's out there to come at the very, very, very end. So this view says Revelation describes the final period of human history before Christ returns. It describes the preservation of ethnic Jews until the return of Jesus. And the two witnesses are real people who will be sent to lead a Jewish revival. And this is one of the, this is the view of, of one of my favorite Revelation commentators, end time scholars, George Ladd. I don't agree with this view, I don't think, maybe some days I do, but I don't think that I do, and, uh, but that's his take, non-dispensational futurist. Now let me pause before I give you the, we talk about the idealist, and let's just talk about these two witnesses uh, that are shown here. All those views that I just presented to you, preterist, dispensational, non-dispensational futurist, they all end up saying that these two witnesses are two actual people, two real people. And some people think it's Moses and Elijah. Some people think it's Enoch and Elijah. Some of the earliest church fathers thought it was Enoch and Elijah. Uh, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, very early orthodox solid church fathers, they thought that the two witnesses would be Enoch and Elijah. And you can understand that to some degree because what happened to Enoch and Elijah at the end of their life? Enoch got taken to be with the Lord, and Elijah rode the chariot up, and neither of them died, and even Moses was buried by God, so that's kind of different in terms of his death. Uh, some people say it's Peter and Paul, or the two witnesses who either were back there in the old days, or they're coming back. Some people think it's James and John. I went down a deep internet rabbit hole this week on the Shakers. I don't know if you've ever studied the Shakers, but they're crazy, and there's like three of them left alive. They're literally almost died out, and they're taking applicants for new Shakers in case you're wondering. But the Shakers say that the first witness is Jesus and the second one was Mother Ann Lee. And if you want to know who Mother Ann Lee was, you can get on Wikipedia and you can go down the rabbit hole and all this craziness. So here's what I'm saying to you. This is what I'm saying. 
a lot of people think that these two witnesses are two actual human beings who will do what John's describing here. And there's all kinds of options for you to pick from in who these two people are. Mix and match it. You don't like any of these. We have a Jake and Jake combo. Maybe you say Jake and Jake is the two. I don't know. You can come up with your own of, of who you think the, the witnesses are. One last comment before I give you the idealist. What I've presented to you in the preterist view and the dispensational and the non-dispensational, these are not just ways to interpret Revelation 11. These are ways that you make sense of the whole book. And however you're going to make sense of the whole book, you just need to be consistent. You don't get to flop it open and play willy-nilly with this chapter and the next chapter you treat completely differently. You have to at least be consistent in how you work through the book and have a big overarching framework. So I don't think the preterist framework is right. So I don't think that this is something in the rearview mirror. I'm not a dispensationalist. So I don't think that this is going to be uh, only something that's right before Jesus returns and it's two real people. And I'm, I, do, I don't think I agree with Ladd either. I think I'd fall in this idealist camp that says this. Revelation is apocalyptic writing that uses recursive narrative. Okay, Recursive narrative is a slinky. The story doesn't move in one straight line. It keeps circling back on itself. And it keeps telling the same story from different perspectives. Recursive narrative to describe things that have happened and will happen throughout history. The temple, the worshipers, the witnesses refer to the people of God. The church made up of Gentile and Jewish believers. The passage describes the faithful witness of God's people, the persecution of God's people, and the ultimate vindication of God's people. That's my view of Revelation 11. It's not everybody's, and it may not be yours, and that's okay. I'm just telling you, you're going to have to be consistent as you go through the book. And just because you want these two witnesses to be two particular people doesn't mean you get to change how you make sense of the book if you are interpreting it according to a particular framework up to this point. You've got to be consistent. So that's interpretive approaches. Let's talk about interpretation, and we'll move through this with some, uh, some amount of speed because we've got a lot of ground to cover. John measuring the temple and the worshipers reminds us that God knows his people. Measure the temple. Measure the worshipers. God knows his people. Um, Ezekiel told to eat a scroll. Have you read the end of Ezekiel? God tells him, go measure the temple. Eat the scroll, measure the temple. That was Ezekiel's commission. And the point to Ezekiel was, I know that my people have been scattered to the winds, to all the nations, but I know them and I'm going to bring them back and I have a plan for them. That's what God's telling Ezekiel. And I think it's the same story. John, eat a scroll. John, measure the temple. It's Ezekiel. John, I know that my people are being persecuted and they will be persecuted, but I know them and I have a plan for them and I will see that plan uh, to fruition. The 42 months, this trampling and the 1,260 days of prophesying, uh, I think refer to the period of redemptive history between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And I've given you this reference in Luke, and then I've given you one, two, three, four references in Revelation. Revelation talks about uh, 42 months, which is roughly the same as 1,260 days, which is roughly the same as three and a half years. 
and it uses this same period of time described differently in multiple places. And this is the sort of stuff that Revelation says happens in that time. Uh, the Gentiles will be trampling. The witnesses will be testifying. The dragon will be chasing. The church will be running. And the beast will be blaspheming. All of that stuff is what happens in this time period. So if you want, you can be a futurist dispensationalist and you can say that's all about the final three and a half years of human history, literally. But I don't think you usually take apocalypse literally even as you take it seriously. And I think when you read these references in context, the best way to understand them, not everybody agrees with this, but I think the best way to understand them is it's describing the period of time between the ascension and the return of Jesus. It's all the same period. So Schreiner says that. Uh, I don't need to read that quote to you. John locates these events. I just want to point this out. Where is all this happening? Well, he says it's in the holy city. What's the holy city? Probably Jerusalem. He also says it's in the great city. And then he says it's in Sodom and Egypt where Jesus was crucified. Was Jesus crucified in Sodom? Was he crucified in Egypt? Okay, I think that's a clue that we're not talking about literal places. I think John's given you a clue. He's, he's moving fluidly from one place to the next, and you're trying to keep up on the map. Wait, where is this great city, Jerusalem, holy city? No, now we're in Sodom. Now we're in Egypt. What's going on? And I think he's basically saying, this is the kingdom of man. This is the kingdom of the earth. This is what John Bunyan in, uh, in Bunyan's work, uh, what's a book called? Pilgrim's Progress would call Vanity Fair. This is the world. This is those who dwell on the earth, as the book of Revelation describes them even in this passage. Uh, so I'm just pointing that out. I don't think this is a literal place. I think it's a fluid place. It's like John talking about Babylon in Revelation. He's probably thinking about Rome, but it's probably not true of just Rome. It's probably a fluid idea that can be applied multiple places. The two witnesses, they're described as two olive trees and two lampstands. And I think all of these images refer to the church. Now, if you want to be really literal and you want some visual backup for this, get on Google Images and search up the two witnesses. And this is the kind of stuff that shows up. It's like out of a, a 1998 video game. And you got these two guys in dresses. Go back to the other one first. I like this other one. You got these two guys. Where are they at? Anybody know where that at? that's at? Do you recognize that? It's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And notice this is the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Currently, there's not a temple there. There's a Muslim shrine there. So they've taken a picture, whoever made this goofy thing. They've taken a picture of the Temple Mount and the site, and they said, look, there's going to be two actual people, and they're going to shoot fire out of their mouth. It's going to be amazing. Don't mess with these guys. They'll blow you up. I would argue that's not literal enough if you want to be literal. And if you really want to be literal about what John says, he doesn't just say there's two witnesses with fire coming out of their mouth. He also says that they are lampstands and they are olive trees. So the next two pictures are pretty literal. Like you got these trees with lampstands coming out of them, and then you got these witnesses built into it. So my question is, how literal do you want to be with Revelation? Okay, people say this all the time. It's a simplistic way to argue about the book. Just take it literal. Take the Bible literal. We should take the Bible literal. Well, do you literally believe that a star is going to crash into the earth and a third of the earth is going to burn up? That's it? 
No, that's not to be taken literal. Do you literally believe that these guys are olive trees or lampstands? And here they are down here with the trees. That's kind of a dark picture and they're holding the lampstands. I mean, this stuff gets silly, right? It gets really silly when you try to take Revelation completely literal. And we talked about this last month with the helicopters and all that nonsense. So, Beal, the two witnesses are not two individual prophets, Moses, Elijah, Enoch, Elijah, Peter, Paul, the Jewish high priest killed in AD 68. Neither are they only part of the Christian community, whether Jewish Christians or Jewish Christian prophets or martyrs. They represent the whole community of faith whose primary function is to be a prophetic witness. Okay, I'm going to give this to you real quick. Why do I think that these two witnesses are the church and not two people individually? Let me put these up. I think I got six reasons. Number one, in Revelation 1, the idea of a lampstand is associated with the church. The lampstands are the churches in Revelation 1, and then as that plays out in 2 and 3. So that's an image we've seen in the book already. Secondly, Revelation consistently calls Christians to bear witness, to be faithful in their witness. Not just two guys at the end of history. All Christians are called to bear witness. I think there's a parallel here with the seals and the trumpets. I made that case when we started out. Four plus two plus interlude plus one equals seven. In the seals, John hears this number, 144,000, and then he turns and what he sees is not 144,000, he sees a great multitude. And that's the same group of people being described in two different ways. And I think the same things happen in the parallel passage when he sees the temple and the worshipers and the witnesses. That's three ways of describing the same thing. John, go look at the temple, count the worshipers, here's the witnesses. He's describing the people of God with all these different images. John tells us that the whole world sees the witnesses. And if you're a Tim LaHaye guy, a Jerry B. Jenkins guy, they say, how is the whole world going to see two dudes in Jerusalem? Television. You're going to watch them on television. Do you think John knew anything about television? I don't think so. So I think that's a stretch. Maybe it makes more sense to say the church is global and there's a witness all over the world. They're going to see it in Kenya because we've got churches in Kenya. You're going to see it in Odessa because we've got churches in Odessa. You're going to see it all over the world because the church is global. Uh, This time period, we've talked about that a little bit. We're going to talk about this more next month, so I'm not going to say a whole lot here. And then they're clothed in sackcloth, which is a picture of repentance, and the church is certainly called to call people to repentance. So my take is that this is uh, a reference to the church. Um, Next, the judgments and the plagues inflicted by the witnesses are reminiscent of Moses and Elijah. No question, the imagery is pulled from Moses and Elijah. Uh, It's also connected to Revelation 8. We talked about that last week where the saints are praying and fire is thrown to the earth in the first four trumpets. I think that's a parallel to what we're looking at here. John describes a beast from the bottomless pit who will war against the witnesses and kill them. I think this is the Antichrist who is empowered by the dragon. Uh, I've given you some verses in chapter 9 we've already looked at. And then chapter 11 and moving to 12 and 13, uh, even to 17. Let me just say this again in case you've missed it. In previous weeks, John never uses the word antichrist in Revelation. He never uses that word. He 
He talks about dragons and he talks about beasts, but he does not use the word antichrist in the book of Revelation. Uh, but I think that's what's being described here. The question is, when does it happen? When does this beast rise up and when are these witnesses, whoever you think they are, when are they killed? Is this something that takes place throughout church history or is it something intense that takes place in the days just before Jesus returns? My answer is yes. Yes. This has been happening. It happened in Rome when Nero and Domitian persecuted Christians and lit them up like torches in the Colosseum. This sort of thing happened. And people celebrated and they laughed and they had a great time because these Christians were killed. Uh, totalitarian states all over the world today persecute Christians. You can get online and find videos of faithful believers in India being dragged out of their churches for their witness and being beaten and killed. That's this work of the beast, persecuting these people who are being faithful in their witness. You can look at Western democracies who increasingly try to impose pressure on the people of God in their witness through political correctness and LGBTQ issues and say that's the same thing. That's the work of the beast who is oppressing the people of God to try to silence their witness. Uh, and I think it's fair to say at the end there will be some intensification of this and there will be an antichrist figure who opposes the church and persecutes the church. I think that's totally legitimate uh, to think about when you read this passage. John assures us that those who are killed for their faithful witness will be raised from the dead. There's this breath, this wind that blows, this spirit that blows, and the breath comes back into these witnesses. They stand on their feet. Uh, I would just direct you to Ezekiel 37. It's the same story. Ezekiel, eat the scroll. Ezekiel, measure the temple. Ezekiel, preach to the dry bones, and they're going to raise up. I think it's the exact same story. John describes a great earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. Those who survived God's judgment were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Uh, I promise you, no one knows what to make of this part of the vision. No one. There is almost no agreement on what's going on here. And the question boils down to this last part with the earthquake and the 7,000 die and these people give glory. The question is, is he describing a revival where people get saved? Or is he echoing Exodus and Daniel where people begrudgingly acknowledge the God of heaven? Like Pharaoh saying, now I know that the Lord is God. I mouthed off earlier, but now I know. Like Nebuchadnezzar saying, oh, now I recognize that he's the God of heaven. He humbled me. I recognize it. He didn't convert. Does not look like he converted, but he begrudgingly acknowledged that. Uh, Philippians 2. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Does that mean everyone's going to be saved? No. Nope. But it means there will be an acknowledgement uh, by all at the end. And you can wrestle with that yourself when these people give glory to the God of heaven. If you think they got saved in some sort of revival. Uh, or if you think it's just an acknowledgement that God is God. Uh, Hamilton. What's the main point of chapter 11? God will protect his people against all satanic opposition. They'll proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. All right, let's look at the last trumpet. And we'll wrap this up quickly. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. This is chapter 11, verse 15. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So that's chapter 11 in the seventh trumpet. Uh, Mount says, when the last trumpet's blown, you expect another plague, but instead you hear voices declaring the eternal sovereignty of God and his Christ. So just a couple of things quickly. John tells us that in the end, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This is one of the passages in Revelation, uh, along with uh, what you see previously with the seals and what you see later with the bowls, that convinces me that John's moving in circles. Because you're right here in the middle of the book, and he basically says, the kingdom of Jesus has come. This is it. Like it's all over. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ. He's taken you all the way to the end. And uh, I think that's the way the book works. It moves in circles. The elders worship God as the Almighty. Notice it says who is and who was. And you may be wondering, why doesn't it say who is to come? And the basic answer to that is in the book of Revelation, sometimes Jesus is called the one who was and who is and is to come. But when he's in the act of coming... He's the one who was and is because he is coming. And that gets left off. So I think what he's describing is the return of Jesus. The kingdoms of the world becomes the kingdom of Christ. Jesus has come back. John describes a full and final fulfillment of Psalm 2, which means judgment for those who dwell on the earth and salvation for the people of God. Judgment and salvation. I think the idea of the temple and the ark are symbolic references to the presence of God with his people. <clears throat> we take this seriously. We don't always take it literally. And I would just point out to you that the ark of the covenant was lost. Nobody has any idea what happened to it after 586 B.C. when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. Uh, the second temple, the rebuilt temple, did not have an ark. They did not make a new ark, and nobody knows where it's at. And there's some crazy guys in Ethiopia who tell you that they have it, and you can get online and see their hokey-dokey little building and say, yeah, I don't think you got it in there, man. But they are convinced they have it in there. Uh, nobody knows where it is. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, John straight up says there's no temple there because God's there. That's been fulfilled. We don't need a temple. God's there. What's the point? The temple was a place where God dwelt with his people. So when John has this vision here of the end and he sees the temple and he sees the ark, you don't need to get all literal and weird about that. You just say, this is the presence of God with his people. It's the same thing John describes at the end of the book where he says God will dwell with them, they will be his people, he will be their God, their God and they'll be together in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's the presence of God. Last, John's recurring reference to flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail bring us to the end of human history. And I would point you to 8, 5, 11, 19, 16, 18 to say that every time John uses that formulaic 
description, he's talking about the end. He's taking you all the way to the end, and then he's about to pivot and describe things from the different perspective and take you all the way back to the end. All right, conclusion. God is sovereign over everyone and everything, and we should fear him. We should fear him. What's he sovereign over? Well, he's sovereign over mighty angels who roar like lions and their their feet span the face of the earth. He's sovereign over satanic attempts to destroy his church and silence the witness of God's people. Uh, He's sovereign over the forces of nature. We've seen that in the seals and the trumpets. He's sovereign over death and that these witnesses, whoever you think they are, say they're two real people. They die. And God brings them back to life. He's in control. He's sovereign over all of these things. He's referred to in verse 17 as the Almighty. The word is the Pantocrator, the one who has all power. He is omnipotent. He's the Almighty One and you should fear Him. The most common thing people say to me about Revelation is, I think it's a scary book. It's a scary book. And if you ask them, what do you mean by that? They say, well, have you read about the locusts? And have you read about the horses with the tails and the smoke and the sulfur? And have you read about... They talk about all these things that apply to those who dwell on the earth. And they're scared of all the mess of life in a fallen world. And they're not scared of the Almighty. And I think what Jesus teaches his people is you should fear the one who has the power to cast your body into hell. You don't need to fear those who can kill you on the earth, but you should fear God. So I think we just ought to be reminded of that as we think about these odd chapters uh, with beasts and dragons and plagues and demons fear God. Secondly, every sinner should repent of his or her sin and put his or her faith in Jesus, and they should do it now. Now, there is a day of judgment coming for those who dwell on the earth. There's a day of salvation coming for God's people, and there's also a day of judgment. Every believer should be a student of God's Word. The amount, as you read commentaries on Revelation 10 and 11, the amount of Old Testament allusions is completely overwhelming. I could have given you a handout with 200 pages trying to chase out and trace down all of the allusions to the Old Testament. Lots of people want to study Revelation. Not many people want to study Ezekiel. (laughs) Everybody gets excited about Revelation. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, not as much. But if you haven't read the material that John is drawing from, and you don't have any desire to understand that fundamental source material, you'll never be able to make sense of this. You're just spinning your wheels. It's like reading the last book in a 10-part series of books. You're never going to get it. You're never going to make all the connection. You might come away with some nugget of truth, but you're not ever going to get the big picture. Be a student of God's Word. Every believer must be willing to admit that some things are not for us to know. I think one of the most off-putting things when it comes to studying the book of Revelation is somebody who says they have it all figured out. Like I, I read, I have a few books in my office that are like that. You can find so many people on the internet, they've got it all figured out. And I just say, 
I don't have time for that. It's so ridiculous. And there's some stuff like these thunders that we're not to know, and we need to admit that. Um, Every believer ought to be ready and eager to share the good news. We're called to be a witnessing people. And these interludes in the trumpets drive that home. John is told to eat the scroll so that he can speak and prophesy the word of God to the people of God and to those who dwell on the earth. That's his calling. It's no different than the calling of any believer is to speak the truth of God's word. Uh, In chapter 11, this role of the witnesses, they're prophesying and they're calling people to repentance. I think that's the call of the church, to witness to the truth of God. The Greek word is martyr, to be a martyr. And we take that to mean die for your faith. Because in early church history, if you witness to the truth, you probably would die for your faith. But the root idea isn't die for your faith. The root idea is open your mouth and witness to the truth of God. Every believer ought to be ready to share the good news. And lastly, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. I gave you two verses here, 1-1 and 22-20. The very beginning and the very end of the book say, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And you read those verses 2,000 years later and you say, define soon. What do you mean soon? It's been a long time and you're not here. Um, This is what I think soon means in the context of Revelation 8, 9, 10, 11. The first six trumpets have blown and they are being blown currently. It's describing the ascension to the return of Jesus. That has happened, and it is happening now. And we find ourselves, like John, waiting for this seventh trumpet, waiting for this last trumpet to blow when Jesus returns, and he judges his enemies, and he raises his people from the dead, and he rewards his people, and he brings judgment on those who dwell on the earth, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ. The nations have raged, Psalm 2, but the sun is going to come back and they will kiss the sun. They will bow before the sun. They will acknowledge that he's the king of kings. All of the things that John talks about, the Bible talks about, will come to fruition. And what we're waiting on is that last trumpet to blow. We're waiting on the last trumpet when time will be no more. The trumpet of the Lord will sound and time will be no more. And I think we'll just end by reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I've read this passage at graveside services about a dozen times in the last six months. And one of the things I say to these people at graveside services is that this is not only a passage for funerals, but it's intended in Paul's mind to be a passage that encourages the people of God. Um, And it certainly fits with what we've talked about in these trumpets. So 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not, uh, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, we're thankful uh, for the Bible, and we read these chapters in Revelation, and it's, it's foreign to us, it's difficult for us to understand and to think about and to process. It's not the way that we're accustomed to talking or thinking, and so we pray that you would give us wisdom. Uh, God, we pray that you would give us humility to know that maybe we don't have all the answers about uh, the end and how to process things in the book of Revelation and understand things. Uh, but Lord, we're clear on some things, and we're clear that you're the Almighty One, uh, that you have all power, and we're clear that there will be a day when you judge your enemies and when you bring salvation to your people. Um, we're clear that we're called to be a witnessing people, uh, to open our mouths and to proclaim the good news, to announce the good news of the mystery of the gospel. And we're clear that we can expect uh, persecution and suffering and opposition. And God, we're clear that the Lord Jesus is coming soon and that he will return with the voice of a mighty angel and this sounding of the trumpet and that the dead uh, will be raised just like Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones and that we will be with you and that these truths ought to encourage us as we witness and as we wait and as we long for the day of Christ's return. So, Lord, we pray that for all the debates and the questions and the uncertainty, uh, that the things that we're clear about would strengthen us and would guide our path. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.